0: All right, grab your Bible with me this morning, open it to 1 John. We're going to start a great series of messages that I am excited about that will take us through the book of 1 John. It is a fabulous letter to the church, and we're going to jump right in this morning because um, it's official now. It is officially official that I have to preach for only 30 minutes. So here we go. Can I do it? Yes, I can, because I did it last service, so I know I can do it. If you can do it once, you can do it again, right? That's right. Well, I'm excited about this series called I Am a Christian. And what we're discovering together is why we're Christians. What is it that we believe? What are the things that make us who we are? 1 John does a great job of explaining that to us. Because what First John is going to do is really lay out a whole bunch of reasons that you and I are believing in Jesus. And so I'm excited to get to 1 John. Um, but before we do, I want us to pray, and then I want us to do a good look at the background of 1 John and why he wrote it. Okay, so let's jump in with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your word. Open our hearts and our minds to what you want to say this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you in right now. We invite your presence here and your power here to be in our midst, to speak to each of us about how your word wants us to live. Help us to not just hear these words, but to put them into practice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. The background of 1 John, why it was written, and what's going on during the time frame of the first century, when John wrote this letter is very important. It's very important because the background helps us understand why this letter is relevant to us today because it is. In fact, this letter is extremely relevant to us today. In the first century church, many things were happening. In fact, the church was just getting started. In the first century, you'll remember Jesus was born. He had a three-year ministry in his 30s that was full of the most miraculous things anyone has ever seen before or since. He died on a cross. He rose again three days later and then returned to heaven, actually left the planet into the clouds, off to heaven in front of 500 witnesses, of which John was one. Now, shortly after Jesus went back to heaven, the disciples have been filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. They're now proclaiming Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem and beyond with powerful boldness. By the middle of the first century, the gospel has started to spread throughout the Middle East, Northern Africa, up into Asia Minor, and even up into Europe. But in 70 AD, something incredibly important happened to the church and in Jerusalem. Here's something very, very interesting. One of the most challenging places of conflict on our planet is where? Palestine. It's never changed. 2,000 years ago in 70 AD, the Romans were so tired of trying to rule the people in the Palestinian area area that do not want to be ruled, that the Romans said enough is enough and they destroyed everything in 70 AD. They destroyed Jerusalem. They burned everything to the ground. They destroyed the temple and everybody who lived in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and all Bethany and all those cities around it, probably down into Jericho even, everybody became a refugee. They all got dispersed all over. Now, guess what those tens of thousands of Christians in Jerusalem took with them? The gospel. And so God spread the church out. And now everyone in in different places all around are now getting to hear this new idea of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There were other things that were interesting about the first century. The lifestyle of a Christian was different. The way a a Christian decided to love the world was totally different than the barbaric concepts that were prevalent in the first century world. Completely different that you would love your neighbor and pray for those who persecute you and do nice things for your enemy. That is a completely different understanding of how life should be lived in the first century. Christians' ideas were new. The idea that God who created everything had come to earth was new and profound. The philosophies of men and the ideas of men, the the things that they talked about in education and in circles were all different from the ideas that people had about Jesus Christ. This is why in many places, if you, if you look at history, one of the things about the Greeks and the Romans that were dominating that area of the world at the time, those two philosophies that really kind of went hand in hand, um, they loved new ideas. And so many, in many places, the gospel would gain ground quickly because the missionaries that would come in, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas and Luke and others, that They would come into a town and they'd say, hey, we've got a new idea. And everybody would say, cool, I want to hear a new idea. And, and the gospel would get an inroad into that community and everybody would get an opportunity to believe in Jesus. But also, in the first century, just like in every century, there were opposing viewpoints to Christianity. There were those who hated the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and would try to destroy it. There were those who used the gospel of Jesus Christ for their own personal gain. And there were those who tried to just change the message of Jesus a little bit to suit their own opinion. And then there were also those who had come into the church, and this is mainly who John is going to refer to, people that had come into the church brought their own false ideas about life and who Jesus was and what it meant to be a follower of Jesus into the church, and they were mixing the fundamental teachings of Christ and their own ideas together and trying to make their own gospel. Sound familiar? In some cases, they even stopped believing the foundational tenets of the Christian faith and we're attempting to lead others astray. Now, with all of this in mind, John writes three letters to the New Testament church. We know them as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And these letters are written to help us understand what it means to believe in Jesus Christ. What it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What it means to say, I am a Christian and so this book is as relevant today as it was in the first century and it is as relevant today as it will be in any century because listen here is the genius of God In the first century, when things are starting to attack the church, ideas are starting to attack the church, where the world is infiltrating the church with new ideas and everybody is having to question what they're going to believe about Jesus, God has John write these three letters that are going to help us understand what it means to be a Christian and what we must believe as a Christian, so that for the rest of time till Jesus comes back, we would have this to read and to base our lives on. Isn't God good? This is the genius of God that the truth would be on paper for us for all time to remind us what it means to say, I am a Christian. Now, as we study 1 John, We have a bit of a challenge. Let me me tell you about the grammatical challenge of 1 John. I just told you the historical challenge of 1 John. Let me tell you about the grammatical challenge of 1 John. John must not have been a very organized fellow. I think John always had a dirty room. But he knew where everything was. Follow me? Always had a dirty room, but he knew where everything was. Because that's what he does with his writing. There's, there seems to be no logical way that everything is put together in 1 John. There seems to be illogical patterns, but all we can discover is that he scatters his arguments for Jesus Christ throughout the letter while depositing truths about Jesus and Christian life in between his arguments towards the false teachers that the church has been hearing. And so what's challenging is to make sense of this. We will have to pick bits and pieces from the letter here and there to make our argument all make sense. In some ways, John writes like a woman talks. Did I say that out loud? Come on, ladies. Follow me for a second, right? Sometimes when you talk to us as men, there's a thought here, and then all of a sudden, you're over here. And we're like, what? I thought we were over here. Nope, we're over here now. Follow me. And then we're over here with another thought. There's my third thought, and I'm going, "Uh uh-huh. Okay. And then here's another one over here. Somehow these are all connected right? Multitasking. And then here's a fifth one over here. But if we listen long enough and well enough, men, what does she do? She makes it all make sense in the end, right? We just have to not shut off once the second one comes out, okay? You got to keep them all together because she's going to make it make sense. That's what John does. Now, here's what's interesting. 1 John, I would say, is one of the letters in the New Testament that makes a lot more sense when you read the whole thing every time. Because he doesn't have bullet points and then give his argument, and then a bullet point and give his argument, and a bullet point, he doesn't do that. He just scatters his thoughts all over the place. He's like abstract art. He's throwing paint everywhere. And then in the end, we say ten thousand (laughs) dollars that's John so what we will do in our study is take a verse from here and a verse from there that have the same concepts and a verse from here and a verse from here that has the same concept and we'll bring them all together and we'll see how that concept that John is talking about refutes something that the false teachers were saying about Jesus Christ make sense Now, here's some of the things that the false teachers were bringing into the church. They claimed that they had fellowship with God, but they didn't know Jesus. They thought they were sinless. They said that they knew God, but they didn't want relationship with Jesus Christ. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God or the Messiah. They denied that Jesus had come in the flesh, that it was only a spiritual experience. And they denied the commands of Jesus. See, 1 John is written to remind us that the truth of Jesus Christ is extremely important. And he wrote it to help us live out our faith in a world that doesn't believe like we do. Let's begin with the most important declaration we make as Christians. This morning, I want to talk about the most important declaration we make as Christians, and it's this. I believe in Jesus. The most important thing that we believe, that we say, and that we live when we say I am a Christian is that I believe in Jesus. Now, John takes a moment to share that from his personal experience, but his personal experience is so powerful that it demands a response from every single person on the planet in every generation. Let me show you. Look at First John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. It says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, Which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Now I want you to notice how Jesus refers, or how John refers to Jesus. The name that he calls Jesus is what? Word of life. Verse 2. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. What a profound testimony. Now here's what John says. He says, I am a Christian. And here's why I am a Christian. I believe in Jesus because I heard him. I saw him. I touched him. In other words, what John is saying is, this is not a dream that I had. This is not a spiritual encounter. This is not a mythological God that is somehow up there that we believe in our culture, but no one has ever heard or seen or touched. That's not the God that I am talking to you about. I'm talking to you about how life that was there in the beginning. And what is he talking about? He's talking about creation. He's saying Jesus created everything with the words that came out of his mouth, life appeared. And that powerful life that created our planet and our universe and all of the known and unknown solar systems. In fact, Colossians says everything visible and invisible was created by Christ. All of it, John is saying, I heard it, I saw it. I touched eternal life. Now, that testimony is so powerful and is so strong that it's the reason you and I sit here today. 2,000 years of the church of Jesus Christ moving forward on our planet, generation after generation after generation. Why? Because Jesus Christ left heaven, came to earth, and appeared here. Died on a cross, rose again, and poured out the Holy Spirit so that you and I would know what it means to live for God and be in relationship with him, be in fellowship with him, John says, in our lifetime. This is the God that John is talking about. This is the God that John will argue for from verse 5 on. This is Jesus Christ. This is the powerful one. And John said, I've seen it. Now, here's why this is important. Some testimonies require all of us to respond to it. That's the testimony of Jesus Christ. It requires every single person to respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ because he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Not everything that we talk about or say requires a public testimony or response. For instance, Jesus is so powerful that it requires a personal response from everyone on the planet. But if I told you, I went fishing yesterday, so you went fishing yesterday, big whoop. It doesn't require a personal response from you. It doesn't require anything from you. If you tell me you went to Costco... Awesome. Do you have a churro? Did it change your life? You eternally set free now? No, it doesn't require anything. But what we're about to look at in the rest of the book of John that becomes our belief and our foundational structure of Christianity requires a personal response from everyone on the planet. Look at what John does throughout the rest of the book, starting in chapter 3, verse 23. In chapter 3, verse 23, John says this about believing in Jesus. He says, and this is his command, to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and to love one another as he commanded us. We must believe in Jesus' name. We sang this morning that there is power in the name of Jesus. See, our confession of belief in Jesus is powerful because his name is powerful, because his name evokes eternal life. That's how powerful his name is. If you say the name of Mark, it doesn't mean anything. It doesn't mean anything. But when you say Jesus' name, amazing things can happen. Powerful things can happen. Our lives can transition from eternal death to eternal life simply because we used the powerful name of Jesus Christ and believed it with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Verse 4, chapter 4, verse 15, John goes on. He says, If anyone acknowledges That Jesus is the son of God. Get this. God lives in them. And they in God. Wow. John says that when you and I believe in Jesus Christ, something changes in our life. We now have an intimate relationship with God the father and God now actually lives in us. And we live in God. Now, this is only possible because the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on a cross completely forgives all of our sin, past, present, and future. So you and I are now completely clean, as clean as the white-driven snow that we have tons of today. And when God the Father looks at us, He sees us holy, set apart, clean, and He can now reside in us like he's always wanted to do because we are set free from our sin. And a holy God can live in an imperfect person because of the power of Jesus Christ. That is a miracle. The next thing that John says is in chapter 5, verse 5. He says this, Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now here's what's great. When you and I come to believe in Jesus Christ, God lives in us and we live in Him and we're set free and our life is totally new. But here's the problem. We still live in this world, don't we? We're still stuck here. We're not in heaven yet where everything will be perfect and there'll be no fear and no pain and no worry and no anxiety and nothing to get us down. Everything will be perfect in heaven, but we don't live in heaven yet. We live in this world. And in this world, there's tons of problems. There's an overwhelming amount of situations that never get tended to and never get fixed. And there's sin everywhere we look, everywhere around us. The world can seem completely overwhelming. And what John says is hey, folks, if you say, I am a Christian, You get to overcome the world. The world doesn't overcome you. You overcome the world. What does this mean for you and I as believers in Jesus Christ? It means this. It means all of our past that we often drag into our present, we don't have to anymore. It means that we can be set free from everything that entangles us from the things that have a strong hold on our life, on our thoughts, on our actions, on our words, they don't have to have a strong hold on our life anymore because through the power of Jesus Christ, you and I can live a different life. We can actually overcome the world in us because Jesus is daily setting us free from our sin. Amen? This is the life in Christ that John is talking about. And he goes on. In verse 10 of chapter 5, he says this, and he's going to get a little serious now. He says, Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony God has given about his Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. He just got serious, didn't he? Now what John says is this. Either you believe in God or you don't. Either you have life or you don't. And there's really no other choice because God's testimony is sound. Because his testimony came and lived here. His testimony died here. His testimony rose from the dead here. And his testimony is sitting next to him in heaven at the right hand of authority. This testimony is that Jesus Christ is who he said he was and that he rescues you and I, that he's not lying. But John makes the point anyway. Either God is lying or God is telling the truth. And whichever you believe, there are consequences. If God is lying and it's all fake and it's all made up, fine. You can believe that. You have free will. But understand as well that you are reaping death itself. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, you inherit eternal life for always. He goes on, lastly, in verse 13, the very next verse, to say this. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Ooh, that's good. See, here's what John says. I'm writing these things to you who believe, because when you believe in Jesus Christ, You get to know something. You get to know the most important thing in your life. What John is saying is when you believe in Jesus Christ, you now have full assurance of your eternity. When you believe in Jesus Christ, when you acknowledge Him, when you believe He's the Son of God, and you believe in His life and His death and His resurrection and the power that is at work in you, when you say, I am a Christian, when you say, I believe in Jesus... You now can know that you are going to heaven. That you have eternal life and it will never be taken from you. Lastly, John has a description of the false teachers. I want to show it to you because it also goes right to this point about believing in Jesus. Look at it with me in chapter 2 verse 18 and 19, where John says this. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. Now, let's look at what John says here. What John is saying is you can tell who a true follower of Jesus Christ is. That a true follower of Jesus Christ, when, when they are confronted with the gospel of Jesus Christ and with the belief about Jesus Christ, if they choose to stay in the church and believe in Jesus Christ, they are for Christ. And they have full assurance of their eternity. If they do not, when they are confronted with Jesus Christ, with the true gospel of Jesus Christ, with his real life and his real death and his real resurrection, they say, nah, not for me, and they leave, then you know that they truly do not believe in Jesus Christ. They are not for Christ. They are anti-Christ. Not for Jesus. They're anti-Jesus. So John makes a powerful distinction between those who are for Christ and those who are against Christ. Let me give you an example. Some of you, I I know this to be true. You're on the Seahawk bandwagon right now. You're on the bandwagon because they're doing well. But let me ask a question. How many of you were Seahawks fans in the 80s? One, two, three, four, five. You're the real ones. Why? Because in the 80s, the Seahawks Were horrible. Let me tell you how bad they were. They were worse than the Niners are now. That's how bad they are. That's how bad they were for two decades. If you followed them then, you're a true follower. The rest of you, fake. Why? Because you're just riding the bandwagon now. While they're good, we'll see when they get bad whether you're a true follower. See, there were people that had come into the church, said that they were followers of Jesus, but then when the conversation really got to the point where people said, no, you have to believe in Jesus to be saved, they said, no, that's not us, and they left. Now, what can we learn from this today? What does it mean for us today? It means this that we must believe in Jesus. That our belief in Jesus Christ must be number one. That our belief in Jesus is the single most defining moment and belief in our life and in our world. When we say, I believe in Jesus, I'm also saying, I am a Christian. It also means that every single person needs Jesus. When you say, I am a Christian, you understand that everybody needs Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is life. He's the word of life. He was there in the beginning. He's eternal life and the word of life, the eternal life, the creator, appeared on our planet and died for you. And rose again for you, that you might have this eternal life forever. If you are here this morning and you're not sure where you're at, you might say, I'm not sure if I believe in Jesus. I don't know if I believe in Jesus. Or maybe you're just, I don't believe in Jesus at all. Can I encourage you to change your mind? Can I encourage you to change your heart this morning? Because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you more than anyone will ever love you. Jesus served you more than anybody will ever serve you. And Jesus wants fellowship and relationship with you more than anybody you have ever known wanted relationship with you. Because most of our friends don't die for us. To be in relationship with us. Jesus did. He said that's how much I love you. And that's how much I want relationship with you. And all I ask you to do. Is believe in me. And start living for me. See he wants relationship. With you.